Welcome to Rabbi Michael Whitman's weekly podcast, Mining the Riches of the Parsha, where we discuss, using classic and modern sources, the insights of each Parsha that will make a difference in your life. Good evening. Welcome to Mining the Riches of the Parsha. Tonight is Thursday night, October 15th. It is hard for me to express how great it makes me feel to be together with you tonight. It's just a wonderful feeling. And tonight we start the Parsha Bereshis, the beginning of the Torah. And I so much look forward to studying this entire cycle together with you. And uh, it's just a wonderful, wonderful experience. Tonight, I have an experiment. What I've done tonight is I've turned on the chat function on Zoom. And you can write a question or a comment to the whole group. It will be visible to the whole group. So here's what I'm going to try to do. At the end of each section, I have four pieces to share with you tonight. So at the end of each section, I'm going to try to remember to glance at the chat. And if there are questions that are relevant to being able to understand what I've said, I'm going to try to answer them. So uh, as long as it's related to understanding what we're discussing and does not take us too far afield. But otherwise, if I don't respond uh, within this session, what I will try to do is I will try to answer or respond to what you've written after the class is over. And I ask that if you do write something, if you include your email with it, so it will make it easier for me to respond if I try to respond later. But I ask you, please, please do not be upset if I don't respond to your comment or question um, during the class. So this is an experiment. It's an experiment to see if I'm able to do this and hopefully to be more responsive and interactive, but also without getting distracted. And, and I'm not at all sure that I'm going to be able to do this. So um, please be uh, understanding and please afterward share with me your feedback on this experiment. So, so we'll try that tonight and we'll see how it goes. Okay. Let's start, please. If you have the, the, the stone chumash, you can turn to page 8. And we're going to begin with Bereshis, chapter 1, Pusik 26. In the stone chumash, it's page 8 at the top of the page. And let's start with a famous Pusik, Vayomer Elokim, and God said, Nase Adam, let us make man. Bitsalmenu kidmusenu in our image, in our likeness, the yirdu bidgasayom, and they shall rule over the fish of the sea, Uba Ofashamayim, and the birds of the heaven, Ubabahema, and over the animals, Uvakolharetz, and the entire earth. Bayom Elakim, God says, Naase Adam, let us make man. Who is us? Who's the us? 
Us is plural. Who's the us? Now, before you try to answer that question, let's just keep in mind that whatever answer you're going to give, it must be very, very significant because the words, in fact, are not true. It is not true that there was a plural that created man because the next Pasuk, the next Pasuk, Pasuk number 27, verse 27, Vayivra God created man in his image. God, one, singular God. So whatever answer you're going to give me as to why the first verse is in the plural, let us make man, it's got to be a reason that will explain why it says it even though it's not true. Not only is it not true, but it's misleading. Because a person could read this Pasuk, Vayomer Elokim Nase Adam, let us make man, and reasonably infer from this Pasuk that there is, God forbid, more than one man, more than one God. There, there appears to be more than one, plural, Nase, let us make, and of course it's not true. There's only one God. But a person could reasonably make that mistake. So why write the word na'aseh, let us make? What lesson is it coming to teach that is worthwhile, not only being incorrect, but also misleading? So Rashi gives the following answer. Rashi said, Rashi says, An v'sanuso shal baruch hu mikan. We learn from this the humility of God because nimlach bepalmalia shalom. God consulted with his, so to speak, court, meaning his angels, the malachim, the angels. God consulted with his angels to decide whether to make man. Now, that is humility on God's part because God, of course, does not need to consult with anyone or anything. <clears throat> so the lesson that God is teaching is even in a situation where it is not necessary to consult with another, still God consults. And that's such an important lesson for us that we should always be humble and be willing to consult with others and not think that we know everything. And that is such an important lesson that God is willing to risk being misunderstood in order to teach us this lesson. Because let's be clear, for God, it's just a lesson because God, in fact, does not need to consult God doesn't need to consult with anyone or anything. But for us, that is, for us to learn this lesson, that is a substantive truth that we must always realize we may not have the full expertise. And we must always be open to the input of others. Our sages teach us, famous line in Pirkei Avos, Ezehu Chacham, who is wise? 
One who is willing to learn from everyone. You cannot be an expert at anything without being willing to learn from everyone. We are getting a front row seat in a course on what is science. Seeking truth from every source that is based on data from any source. And what we are learning about what science is, what truth is, is very much unlike anyone who says, I know it all, I don't need to consult with anyone else, that approach will not lead to truth. And God felt that it was worthwhile to risk being misunderstood in order to teach us this lesson at the very beginning of the Torah. Okay, that's one answer, the answer that is given by Rashi. Let me share with you a second answer that is given by Dr. Abraham Tversky. Dr. Tversky says, God addresses man and says, let us, you and I, together, make the ideal person. Let us, together, create. In other words, God says to us, I am creating you imperfect. I am creating you unfinished. And God says to man, to every one of us, I am also creating within you the potential to become that ideal person. You, God says, you and me, God says, will be God's partner in our creation, in the creation of man. Let me give you a medical analogy. Now, I'm not a doctor, so please don't rely on my word for what I'm about to tell you. But this was the subject of an article in Lancet, which is a very important medical journal, in 2010. And it's about a technique that is called remote preconditioning. And remote preconditioning works like this. Someone, God forbid, is having a heart attack. The technique is to inflate a blood pressure cuff around their arm and inflate it and reduce it. And that technique can reduce the amount of permanent damage to the heart by up to half. Listen to the words from Lancet. <clears throat> Cutting off blood flow in the arm in short, brief bursts 
then restoring it again, causes the body to release a substance in the blood that sends a message around the entire body that something bad is about to happen. It warns and protects the heart from subsequent damage by triggering changes in heart cells so that they can better resist the lack of blood flow. It also makes white blood cells react less aggressively, causing less damage after the heart attack. Fascinating. In other words, we have within ourselves the ability to make ourselves better. We have that potential. We just need the right trigger. We just need the right trigger to elicit our own ability to make ourselves better. Let me share another medical example that's very, very current. Vaccine. That's how a vaccine works. A vaccine elicits, by injecting this substance, it elicits the body to respond with a response that helps to cure the illness. So what Dr. Tversky is saying is, just like in the physical realm, similarly in the spiritual realm, God gives us the tools to trigger reaching that potential. Our sages say about the mitzvos, the commandments that we have in the Torah, our sages say, Lo nitnu ha-mitzvos, the reason God gives us commandments to follow is in order to refine us, in order to improve us. And therefore, the Torah says, God says, Adam. Let us, God and man, together create man so that we become partners in God's creation. Okay. There's a similar problem <clears throat> in the same verse, but a different word. One more time, page 8, top of the page. Pasuk 26, by Yomer Elohim, God says, Nase Adam, let us make man. Okay, we discussed that. So, let us make Nase Adam, let us make man. Adam, the first person. One singular individual. The year do bidgasayom, and they shall rule over the sea and the heavens and the land. What happened there? If God created Adam singular, how does the same verse transfer to they, plural, shall rule? Who is the they in this verse? Because in this verse, in this Pasuk, there's only one. There's only Adam. Who is the they? <coughs> I want to share with you an answer 
that is given by Rabbi Iserlin Yisrael, who lived in the early 1400s in Austria. He is best known by the title of his major work, which is Trumas Hadeshen, a very important work. And his answer is based on a famous discrepancy between our verse, Nase Adam, that God created one person, Adam, singular, and later created Chava, Eve, the second person. That's how we have it in this passage. But if you turn, please, to page 24, and you look near the top of the page at chapter 5, Pusik number 2, near the top of the page. Here we have another telling of the creation. And in this Pusik, the Torah says, Zachar Unikeva Baram. God created male and female, which seems to imply God created both male and female at the same time. So which is it? Did God create one person and from that first person God created the second person? Or did God initially create two people? So that discrepancy between these two passages is a famous question. There are many, many answers that are given to that question. And there is one very curious answer that is given in the Talmud. The Talmud gives the following answer. The Gemara says, the Talmud says, Adam was created as both male and female. A single being that had a male side and a female side that was in both gender and sex, male and female, and then that one being was divided into Adam, Adam, and Chava, Eve, man and woman. So, Pusik Bays Chapter 5, verse 2, is precise. God initially created Zachar and Nekeva, male and female. Though it was not in two separate beings, but it was in one being. That's what is indicated in the earlier Pasuk, Nase Adam. That first Adam was one being, but both male and female. That is how the Trumas Adeshen answers the apparent discrepancy. What I would like to point out to you is, once we understand that answer, and we also connect that to the insight from that earlier verse, the earlier Pusik, that God, that man, that God has created, that God created man, but selem elikim in the image of God, we understand that male and female 
in both gender and sex is not binary. It's not either or male or female because both reflect a unity that is found in God. God is one. God is the unification of everything. And therefore, male is a part of God. Female is a part of God. Male and female are not opposites. They are complementary. So every person contains a mixture of male and female. Now, for many people, one or the other, male or female, is dominant in both gender and sex. But we also know, and we are learning more about this every day, that in some people, the mixture is not as clear-cut in both gender and sex. Now, Jewish law has a lot to say about how we approach this important topic. But right here, at the very beginning of Bereshus, we should start with respect for every single person, because every person is created B'Tselem Elohim in God's image. And we should appreciate from the very beginning of the Torah the complex, non-binary nature of gender and sex that is derived from these verses. Okay. <clears throat> Let's stick with page 8. Page 8 is working out well. Let's work our way through. I now want to look on page 8. It's chapter 1. I want to look at Pasuk number 28, a few lines from the top of the page. So, we all know there are 613 commandments in the Torah. The commandments are mentioned throughout the entire five books of the Torah. There is no obvious order to the unfolding of one commandment after the other. Some appear as part of a narrative. Others appear in groups. But that means that there are 613 choices of which one will be first. Which commandment of the 613 will be the first in the list? And with 613 to choose from, God chooses this one. Pasuk 28, And God blessed them, meaning Adam and Eve, And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. To be fruitful and multiply, to have children. That is the first mitzvah of the list of 613. 
Obviously, it's a very important mitzvah. It's number one. Our rabbis in the Talmud tell us something very important. It is so important. Our rabbis tell us that God will ask every single one of us the following question. Asakta bepruravu? Were you engaged in the mitzvah of pruravu? Did you follow through on this mitzvah? Because it's really, really important. Now that phrase in the Talmud is has a very strange wording to it because the Talmud has God asking every single one of us not the question, did you fulfill the mitzvah? Kiyamta, did you fulfill the mitzvah of Pruravu? That's not what God will ask us. God will ask us a sakta. A sakta to be osake means were you involved in the mitzvah of Pruravu? A sakta Pruravu. Strange wording. Why does the Talmud say that God will ask us about being involved in a mitzvah? I mean, God's not concerned whether we're involved with keeping kosher. God wants us to actually keep kosher. What is the significance of God asking us, are we involved in the mitzvah of Puravu, of having children? So the Maharsha, which is one of the classic commentators to the Talmud, gives the following answer. Marsha says, Lo amr kiyamta pruvu. The Talmud has God not asking every one of us, did we fulfill the mitzvah of having children, but rather asakta, were you involved in dahainu, which means, this is what the Marsha says, were you involved with lahasi yasom viyasoma? Were you involved with arranging a wedding for a couple that was not able to afford to, to afford to make a wedding on their own? Were you ever involved in such a mitzvah to help a couple be able to become married when they themselves could not afford to do so? That is the being involved in that God is going to ask us about. In other words, what the Marsha means to teach us is that the mitzvah pruravu to have children is much wider than just giving birth to children because not everyone is able to succeed in biologically having children. So, there are multiple paths to fulfill this mitzvah. One path is to marry and biologically give birth to children. That's one path. Another path is to adopt children. Our rabbis tell us in the Talmud, a person who takes in a child and adopts that child and raises them within their home, it is considered as if they gave birth to that child. Adopting a child is also a fulfillment of the mitzvah of pruravu. Another path is to teach or mentor or influence 
the children of others. That is also a fulfillment of the mitzvah pruravu. Our rabbis tell us in the Talmud, Hamalami Torah leben chavero, one who teaches Torah to the child of one's fellow, to someone else's child, ki'ilu yoldo. It's as if he gave birth to that child. That's a path to fulfilling the mitzvah of pruravu. And another path is to facilitate and assist in the wedding of others in need so that they will be able to have children. That is what the Marsha is teaching us, a fulfillment of a sakta where you involved in the mitzvah of Pruravu. The common denominator of all of these paths is to be involved in seeing to the next generation. Living a life that is not centered on myself, but centered on helping others. No one is omitted or excluded from the mitzvah of Pruravu in its widest, most authentic sense. Notwithstanding that, it still causes deep pain for the one in six couples that face infertility or repeated miscarriages. Now, if you're hearing that statistic for the first time, one in six, you may think that that's an exaggeration. I will tell you, number one, it is very, very well documented. And number two, just to speak personally, in my experience as a rabbi in our community, that figure is absolutely accurate. One in six couples will face infertility or repeated miscarriages. And the pain is particularly acute in our traditional Jewish community where so much of our Jewish life centers on children. Couples going through infertility experience bewildering medical issues. Often they experience overwhelming financial pressure from the cost of treatments that can reach many tens of thousands of dollars. And then there is the shattering emotional heartache from false hope and repeated attempts that are not successful and from constant feelings of loss and helplessness. Alison Bradow is a psychologist that works with those who are going through the experience of infertility. And she wrote, people affected by infertility must adjust to a major shift in life expectations while being exposed to constant reminders of their condition through questions from family members, 
medical treatments or interactions with pregnant women. And when they come to shul, when there is shul, they may feel isolated and self-conscious and tragically distanced from God who is not responding to their tearful prayers. Devorah Enten is a social worker who sees couples with infertility. And she writes, More than anything, couples experiencing infertility must find time for self-compassion. We are so hard on ourselves. We use the language of failure, failed cycle, ovarian failure, internalizing this message of failure as if we have control over these medical issues. Too many women and men further internalize that message with disgust or hatred toward their bodies. Self-compassion, on the other hand, is internalizing the fundamental message in our Parsha that we're studying, that every one of us is created B'Tselem Elohim, cherished by God, regardless of how our bodies work. As a community, we need to be more sensitive and more careful to properly support and not, God forbid, unintentionally cause more pain. And part of that challenge is that no two people suffer or react identically to similar situations. So any guidelines or advice on what to say or do requires a caveat that the consequence and response may vary among different people. But here are some general guidelines. Dr. Talia Hinden, another professional that works in this area, writes, in general, if someone is or may be experiencing infertility, it is wise to take their lead regarding if and how much they want to share or discuss. Make it clear you're there to provide support without being intrusive or pushy. She suggests, and this is very, very subtle, think, if you're blessed with children, think before complaining about your own children or situation and consider how others around you might experience what you have to say. Someone who is, for example, the mother of children may say something like, oh, I'm so worn out, I was up all night with my children. Someone may say before a yumtov, oh, I had to buy so many pair of shoes for all my children. A woman who is going through the pain of infertility, could hear that remark, which is made without any ill will, but could hear that remark and her heart could break 
And she would be saying to herself, crying to herself, I would give anything in the world to have that difficulty to be kept up at night by a child, to have that difficulty to have to go buy so many shoes before Yom Tov. Now, that doesn't mean that we should never talk about our children. People who are dealing with infertility usually don't want to feel that they're being treated differently than anyone else. But what Dr. Hinden is teaching us is that we should be aware when we say something of how someone else going through a different experience might feel about the words that we innocently say. There's an amazing organization called Yesh Tikva, one of many organizations, Jewish organizations, devoted to assisting and supporting those who are going through infertility. And they make the following suggestions that are very, very wise and important. They suggest, if someone reaches out to share his or her story, the best thing that we can do is be a friend, listen. Don't offer any medical suggestions unless you are specifically asked. Don't offer any advice on increasing the chances of conception unless you are specifically asked. Asking someone when they will have children can be very hurtful and can be a reminder of their struggle. Never push someone to share information about their fertility challenges and the treatments that they're navigating. Do not assure someone everything will be okay. Because you don't know if everything will be okay. And generally, statements like that are not comforting to people. Likewise, here are a couple of other phrases to keep far away from because generally they do not give the comfort that we may think we are giving when we say them. To say to someone, well, it's God's plan. It's for the best. That is not a helpful statement. And here's my top unfavorite statement that I hear people saying. God only gives us challenges that we can handle. That can be very, very hurtful to a person because a person does not feel like they're able to handle it. And we would be wise to stay away from those kinds of statements. Starting this Shabbos with the Parsha Bereshis, this Parsha should teach us to take the humility to recognize that in the world God created, we don't know what is meant to happen to us or why. But we are meant to help each other in what we say and do and what we do not say and do. Let's start with remembering the mitzvah that God chose to present to us as mitzvah number one in the Torah. 
pruravu. And let's remember the sensitivity with which our sages present God asking us about it. Not whether we fulfilled it, but whether we were involved in it. Because there are multiple paths so that everyone can participate in this mitzvah. And the first step to helping is to speak about this openly, to learn about the issues and challenges, to listen to those who are experiencing this, and to recognize the enormity of the challenge in breadth and depth that so many people around us are going through. May the prayers of all of us be answered by God who gives life. Let me share one last piece. It's a remarkable story <coughs> about the Rav, Rav Soloveitchik of blessed memory. He was the Rosh Yeshiva, the head of Yeshiva University. It once happened that Yeshiva University was facing a serious crisis and there was an emergency board meeting of the board of directors of Yeshiva University. And all of a sudden, Rabbi Soloveitchik, Rabbi Soloveitchik appeared uninvited. He was not involved in the administrative running of the Yeshiva. He was the Torah teacher of the Yeshiva. But he appeared unannounced, uninvited, and he asked to be able to address the group. And of course, he was invited to address the group. And here's what he said to them. The Torah tells us that God saw all he created and God declared what he had created was tov ma'od, exceedingly good, very good. Strange. Why does God have to declare it very good? Of course, what God creates, by definition, is perfectly good. It's tov ma'od, exceedingly good. Why does God have to tell us that he thought that his work was good? The Rav answered as follows. God is teaching us that there are times that we have to look at what we are doing, especially when we face a challenge and we have to realize we are doing good. We have to declare it out loud because that will save us from losing sight of the merit of our mission. Remember the Rav said to the board of YU, remember, what you are doing is very good. Tov ma'od. And with those words, the Rav rose and left the meeting. We need to say that to ourselves. Many of us are anxious to be facing a winter with covid we are tired of the restrictions. 
We see no end in sight. But observing safety, following the precautions, staying at home, wearing masks, distancing, hand washing, is the highest mitzvah. And putting that first is tov ma'od, exceedingly good. And when we do that, we need to remind ourselves that we are tov ma'od. Every one of us who is following those guidelines, let's just say it out loud to ourselves, we are tov ma'od, exceedingly good, very, very good. You are very, very good. My friends, I want to wish you a great night and a fantastic Shabbos. I look forward to seeing all of you soon in person, and I look forward to continuing to study together.